I care so much about these 12 people that we commissioned and every single person that we interview on the podcast and everyone we work with that, you know, they know their voice is important because they have great music. And we're not just trying to, you know, say, you know, make it the buzzword of, right. oh yeah, like we're diverse. Oh yeah. Like we really care about the sustainable inclusion that, mm-hmm. you know, everyone really takes a second to reflect on their practice, the language they use, how they talk about these issues. Um, because it's so much more than just the couple pieces you program on a recital. Warning. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guests for this episode are Ashley Killam and Carrie Blosser. Ashley and Carrie are on a mission. As the co-founders of Diversify the Stand, they have taken on the monumental task of upgrading the state of music education by giving voice to composers that represent groups that have historically been overlooked. Their first major project, Winds of Change, offers a progressive approach to trumpet solo literature, but it's their mindset and teamwork that make them a force to be reckoned with. So pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. Welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I am joined today by not one, but two guests. Yes, that's right. It's a two for one. It's a BOGO today here on the Trumpet Gurus Hang. I'm joined by Ashley Killam and Carrie Blosser. So all the way from uh, the Windy City. So good to see you. Good morning. Good Thanks morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know when, you know, people watch this at all, you know, various times of the day and during the week and things like that. But, you know, I just want to want to let everybody know that that as we're recording this episode, uh, I'm recovering from a gig last night and getting ready for a gig tonight. So I am definitely caffeinating up. And uh, as a matter of fact, here's my wonderful Lancaster County Cup. So um, it's that kind of day. So. I am so happy to have you on because, you know, one of the things that that I try to do with this podcast, I mean, obviously you have the the usual cast of characters, right? Uh, These are the, you know, the names that everybody knows, everybody wants to know more about. Um, But also a big part of this is to give voice to people who are making a difference that are the next generation of of great players, the next generation of great educators, the people that are uh, stepping up to fill the holes that it still exists in, in music, both in terms of the art and uh, of the structure and the society that, that music is, the world that music mm-hmm. is. So I'm really happy to have you two on because diversity is a huge thing to me, obviously. Uh, and I think that, that people who are doing something different uh, and have a different voice, it's so important to give them that, that opportunity. So uh, let's see, how, how are we going to start this one? Let's let's start with Ashley, because Ashley was the first one on, and we'll start with the letter A. And so we'll start in alphabetical order. Um, so why don't you uh, just kind of talk me through what got you to the point that you're at right now in terms of your your commitment to music and, and particularly that your commitment to uh, the the aspect of diversity in music? 
Yeah. So when I was getting my master's um, at the University of New Mexico, uh, I took a, a class there called Female Voices in Composition. And we just learned about um, women composers. And I realized for trumpet that there was only one piece I could name that I was pretty sure was by a woman. And that was the Pakhmutova concerto. But I wasn't sure because Russian names. Um, and so for that class, our final project was to build a recital for our instrument. So I built my trumpet recital and I realized like I can just do this as my master's recital. So my master's recital was by all living women composers and that kind of kickstarted just all of the research I've done the past five years in you know, finding all of these great works that aren't necessarily in what we think of like the standard canon. Um, and it's like a year and a half ago now, a little less than a year and a half ago, um, I, I was trying to do some volunteer work with IWBC and ITG, and someone put me in contact with Carrie because she had also asked to volunteer. And so we started chatting and realized that we had a lot of ideas to make some change really quickly. And we wanted to, you know, start an initiative. And it wasn't even an initiative at first. It was just let's brainstorm some ideas to, you know, make a little change in the trumpet world. Um, and we realized we could start Diversify the Stand um, and do a lot of commissioning specifically for uh, younger musicians. Because a lot of the times when we think of new music, we think, you know, really virtuosic works that professionals play, but we don't necessarily think of uh, younger players and our students that we teach. Right. Oh, that, that's, a, that's a great perspective to have on that. Um, so Carrie, um, you are, um, you know, we were having a conversation off camera about the fact that you grew up, uh, not too far from, from where I live right now. So, um, you know, what's your, your journey has been kind of interesting as well, you know, from going from, from central Pennsylvania to, uh, you know, where you are now and all the things you've done in between. So, uh, what are some of the experiences you've had that, that have brought you to this point? So I did music education through the um, Messiah College in central Pennsylvania. So Jose and I probably crossed paths, but didn't know it probably for the first like 10 years of my professional career, which is kind of wild. So glad to meet you here and hopefully get to meet you in person one day. <laughs> um, but I, I did graduate work in Colorado between my master's and my doctorate. I taught public school. So I was a music education teacher. I did sixth uh, grade through 12th grade, all things band in Texas. So I spent a lot of time working with young players and I think my favorite levels to teach are definitely like baby beginners and college students and kind of that in between and developing um, trumpet players and, and on all brass students. I, I taught a pretty large studio in Colorado when I was doing my doctorate there. So I really cut my teeth in teaching, had a lot of really successful students who have gone on to play as as professionals. One is like a college teacher now, which is pretty fantastic when you get to see students like actually doing these like big jobs out in the world and taking some of the ideas maybe that you taught them and are teaching future generations, which is awesome. Wow. Um, uh, after I finished my doctorate, I won a job with the uh, United States Navy Fleet Band. So I'm a military musician currently, which is why I'm in Chicago because Navy Band Great Lakes is just north of Chicago. Um, I transferred here during the pandemic, which was really stressful, and I was doing a lot of at-home recording projects, but the military bands were just kind of at home. So I was looking for a lot of opportunities to volunteer to kind of uh, do something with all of that anxiety that I had to 
not be able to play my instrument, to not be able to play with other people, concern for the world. Um, and I met Ashley and we got to talking. I do a lot of the social media aspects of of the Navy band on top of performing. So I've, I learned a lot of kind of about media and marketing and wording and branding just through my, my job itself. And um, we started coming up with ideas of like, hey, maybe we could like, let's make some change. Like, what can we do? Is there, what pieces are there for beginner students to play that aren't by dead white guys? I couldn't think of anything. And then I realized I spent 20, 30 years only playing music, mostly by dead white guys. And yeah. I was like, this has got to change. If I've done it for 20 years, I can do something different for the next 20. So um, yeah, so we started Diversify the Stand as a business, mostly because we decided we, we could fund this ourselves, but it would be really expensive. So we crowdfunded and we asked for help from our trumpet community, friends, family, all donated. So we had over 120 people donate to the project. We made it a business so it wasn't just people Venmoing us personally because yeah. that felt a little shady. <laughs> um, not that that isn't a great thing, um, but when you're working with a lot of people taking, you know, having something that's really clear, really easy to understand. Um, and like, it just felt a little safer to me. And then that way we knew that we were, it, it, we're not paying ourselves for this commissioning project. Um, all the all the funds go directly to commissioning the composers and then creating the book. And we can show you because our hundred copies just came in oh. um, yesterday. So uh, we have all of our donors on the back. Oh, that's awesome. Nice. And then all of our pieces. So um, yeah. So you're you're the first person to really see it in in the in the flesh. So. Oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah. Hey, you know, have a, this wonderful unveiling. You know. Unboxing is a big thing now on YouTube, you know, everybody's unboxing stuff. So, uh, well, let me, let me ask you about, um, well, yeah, I was going to ask you about diversified stand, but you guys already just kind of dove right into it. So it's like wasted no time. I love it. I love it. Um, so the, the book, the book is, um, etude solos, uh, that, that are written for students of what caliber? So um, it's a progressive book. Um, so when we reached out to these composers, we had in mind um, our kind of like breakdown of the 12. It's all solos, trumpet solo with piano accompaniment. Um, we have three, we commissioned three composers to write beginning works, which beginning for us was, you know, a year or two of playing where they can generally play up to like an, um, fourth space E. And then uh, we commissioned four intermediate works, which generally intermediate is like solid middle school player, early level high schooler player that can play up to like right around the G's and the A's above the staff. Um, and then we commissioned five advanced works, which are the more um, like a solid high school player, getting into undergrad players. So it's kind of one of those books that can follow you. Mm -hmm. as you go through your career and then i mean it's not just great for those these would be great works for professors or professionals or you know graduate students that maybe want a piece that's not a complete chop destroyer on a recital or that you can easily take with you to tour anywhere um and they're really fun <laughs> mm -hmm. they're they're really it's nice because um the composers we commissioned write and and have written and are writing um, in a variety of styles. So we tried to give them very few guidelines. We pretty much said, you know, stick within these keys, 
for these levels stick within this range because we know trumpet range really well. Um, but the rest of it was up to them. And so we wanted their voices heard and which comes across really great because every piece covers something different. And we have everything from, you know, very lyrical through very technical through more like contemporary. Um, each one is a little like a new story that players and educators can kind of work on. Mm -hmm. well, that sounds like a great idea. I mean, even with the fact that, you know, I, I know that, that the, the driving impetus for this is to give voice to uh, underrepresented uh, composers, but just that whole concept of having this progressive studies, uh, I, I think it's phenomenal. And I think that, that more people should, I mean, it should have been done a lot earlier, I think, uh, especially with, with, you know, having some, some fun with it. And, um, and I think especially in the, the younger developmental stages, uh, it's important to make music fun. You know, yes, we, we want to have a challenge, but if it's not fun, you know, why, you know, why are we going to do this? You know? So, uh, you know, having that diversity of, of style, of stylistic expressions, um, I think, uh, will be interesting and challenging to the student and, and carry as, um, as someone who's, you know, uh, you know, working in, in, you know, working with the, with the Navy and things like that. Um, is this something that you would see yourself being able to utilize, say, if you're doing uh, a master class somewhere or, you know, going out and do a, a special feature uh, in your performance schedule? Yeah, absolutely. I think these pieces are nice one, because we're doing everything in-house. I We personally know the composers through the process, which is really awesome. So I feel like that that extra special connection for me, I'm trying to think of other pieces that I'm going to, like if I was to go program a recital tomorrow, like I might just program the whole book and be, <laughs> that would be great. But yeah, they, they're very, um, there's, they're pieces that have challenges even for like sections of them are, are challenging for professionals. So I, I think it would be a good fit to go play with a pianist anywhere on a masterclass tour or um, these are, are just for trumpet and piano. So it wouldn't be a solo in front of like an orchestra or a band piece mm -hmm. that maybe could be a, a project down the line. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I, I think you're already, uh, you're getting ahead of yourself there. So <laughs> Ashley is like, oh my God, we just got done with this one. Let's the. <laughs> Let's oh, no, it's breathing. the other way around. I have all these ideas where I'm like, okay, so this is next and this is next. And Carrie's <laughs> like, okay, can we um launch this book first? <laughs> all right. Well, there's, well, there's always one. There's always one in the group. So yeah, yeah. So, and speaking of which, um, you know, it, I actually was having a conversation with uh, one of my my bandmates uh, in uh, last night. And she and uh, her partner, another female, both in the band, uh, they run an entertainment company. And we were having the discussion about gender in the music business and, um, you know, and, and the ability to work together in the music mm -hmm. business and uh, how sometimes gender plays a role in that and how it would be more difficult for her. She felt like it'd be more difficult for her uh, as a female working with a male counterpart because you know you get that kind of butting of heads and uh you know so she she was kind of expressing how the dynamics of, of their their work and, and how how there are some advantages 
of that. So, uh, you know, do you guys, uh, how, how do you guys deal with each other in terms of delegation of duties? And, uh, you know, how, how do you, how do you mesh? How do you become a team? It was a pretty fast, uh, friendship and teamwork for us. I think we're both pretty, uh, type A people, um, but complement each other really well. And I think that's why we've been so successful. Like we were, became Facebook friends a year ago. Um, and diversified stand is almost a year old. Like in two months, we're the the business. The business is a year old. Um, yeah, De I don't. We just say like this is what we need to do, and then Ashley normally does like ninety percent of it, and maybe leaves me one thing to make me feel better <laughs> that I've contributed. Oh. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but she's so, yeah. also got the full time job. Everything that I'm doing is like fully remote. Um, and Carrie, the one big thing you're doing right now is huge. <laughs> She's doing all of the finale editing and engraving for the trumpet book, for the piano book. So I'm like, you have the giant project. I'll, I'll make everything survive. Uh, uh, but when we started, we like pretty much planned out, you know, the major things that were all involved. Everything from like, you know, the financial to like social media and marketing to what goes into, you know, making a podcast happen. And we delegated our, all of our little roles for, you know, what our strengths were. Um, and when we eventually, like, we're moving this into a nonprofit. And so, which means we have to bring someone else in the team. And, and so that just, you know, as we move forward with this, we, with people we bring on the team, it's kind of adjusting to see what people's strengths are, because the worst thing we want to have happen is give someone you know, a project that they're not going to enjoy doing and, yeah. and they don't want to put their, their time and their, their effort into. So where, where do you see this business being in you know, the next five years? What's your, what's your vision? Well, we've applied to become a nonprofit because our like mission and vision and values really align with that. Um, I would like to return to the great state of Colorado at some point. Um, so that is, the nice thing with nonprofits is technically you could like house them in any state that you want. So we're idealist and we love hiking. So both Ashley and her spouse and, and my spouse, we'd all kind of like to live there or New Mexico. <laughs> so we're kind of like putting, putting a, our vision where we physically want to be too, which is nice. But um, we started with this project and from this project, we have kind of two ideas that we want to go forward. It's to take this book and make it for every instrument that it, it fits with. Um, so like all of the band instruments, maybe mallet percussion, potentially strings and see like how that fits. Um, and then we'd also like to start another commissioning project that does a few like um, kind of like like a three part mixed ensemble, like duos and trios, again, by by composers from all different backgrounds um, that are for like mixed ensembles and then have that as like the second collection of pieces again so we're just giving more access and more opportunity to you know students to professionals whoever to to work on with any kind of instrument in that kind of like mixed ensemble thing yeah those are like the, the three big things that we'd like to do and i'm sure that if i talk to you again in about three months it, it's going to be like 20 other things on the list <laughs> What I, what I think that we would want to do is huge. I think those are the ones that we're pretty committed to doing. Um, and part of the way we structured this collection, again, like maybe we're bad business owners. We're bad because we're not paying ourselves for this work um, because it's important to us to, to get the composers paid. Um, 
so they're getting a percentage of the, the this I'm pointing at the book like people can see me um sorry uh, they get a percentage of the when we sell the book they get a percentage of those profits and then the rest of the money from that actually goes to funding the next project so we're kind of building in that so we don't maybe crowdfunding was great and we had so much support but we'd love to be able to like internally continue to fund the next projects mm -hmm. um so then that way people are, are focused on like purchasing the book and playing it rather than uh, that huge investment that seed money to start the next thing so mm -hmm. right well it's important you know from from the business perspective to to have a self-sustaining you know organization so uh, it's always the beginning, you know, I've, I've started a few businesses over my lifetime and that, that, you know, first couple of years of just getting to the point where you're not putting money into it, where the money, where the, the business actually paying for itself and then eventually mm -hmm. hopefully be able to pay you. Um, so that, that's very, very important. Um, so with, in, in conjunction with what you're doing with Diversify the Stand, which, uh, link to uh, diversified stand is in the show notes so make sure you uh, go visit that and uh you know uh, support and buy the book and everything like that um but besides besides the diversify the, the stand like the the concept of, of doing this book and and the uh the foundation of it which is the the giving the voice to to um, the people that that in the past have traditionally not been able to do that what kind of, of impact have you seen? Because I know you've seen impact already. What kind of impact have you seen as a result of this project? We've gotten so many emails um, from various educators and performers um, to the point that like we wrote a, a document with our like with solid answers uh, that we've crafted to send back just to people asking about you know, building the LLC and starting the nonprofit and how you go about commissioning and how you reach out to composers. And this is stuff I talk about in a lecture series that I give. Um, and it's the same thing. People asking these questions on just how to do it because none of, we, we never, we didn't really have an instruction manual on starting this. We kind of had to figure out from scratch, okay, what's the best way to commission 12 different people at the same time? Um, like how, how do you start that? You don't learn that in, you know, a music degree at all. Right. You just kind of have to figure it out. Um, so we've been, I mean, giving as much advice and being open books to other people who want to start similar initiatives and projects and, and commissioning. Um, we, the two of us have given some different chats, um, with different organizations talking about this and it's really cool to see, um, just the big change and the big drive for especially younger musicians that are so eager to program new music and to, you know, play more than just the same four or five pieces. So that's been really cool to see. Yeah. Well, it, and I guess the, the second part of my question would be, um, have you felt any pushback from people because of this? Very rarely. Um, every once in a while we'll get something that's like, oh, everything we have is fine, everything's blah, or like, why would you say this? It, it literally, it's maybe been, what, like three times? And it's more towards Ashley's lecture series, like, than, than like, Diversify the Stand is, we've had nothing, like, of, of that, like, you know, <laughs> that person, like, the Diversify the Stand website and our contact stuff, we've had nothing but really positive stuff. Every once in a while there'll be, like, a little weird email, um, 
I think I've gotten four total since I started lecturing in 2019. I've gotten four like angry emails, but that's it. Well, that's a good ratio. Yeah. Yeah. Of like thousands of emails, right? Like, yeah. yeah. But, you know, in some ways, I kind of feel like, especially based on, on, on the nature of what you're doing, that having more angry emails might actually be a good thing. And, and the reason, no, the reason I'm saying this is because, you know, this is a systemic problem. You know, the reality is that, you know, the reason that we need to, to use these words, I know people get pissed off about, you know, hearing the word diversity all the time, you know, getting so burned out on it. But the reason that diversity is important is because we haven't had diversity. And, you know, if, if people were actually giving everyone equal opportunity, then we wouldn't have to have these kind of conversations. So the fact of the matter is, is that there are more people that buy into that old paradigm that, you know, they, they aren't willing to speak up. They aren't willing to express their uh, frustration or their, their anger, their uh, disagreement with it. And I think that's where we run into the problem is because when those feelings are hidden, when those beliefs are whitewashed, then we can't have the true deeper conversations that we need to move ourselves forward. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, I, I certainly am happy that you only have four, four bad emails, but you know, uh, I, I think that, that that's kind of the thing is that people want to ignore it and say, eh, it's not a big problem, but you know, until it isn't a problem, it's going to stay a problem. So, I mean, when, when you went into this, were you feeling, I mean, I know there's always the euphoria of like, we've got this great idea and we're going to go, boom, we're going to make these changes. Uh, but did you have any level of trepidation of, you know, while we, we could be potentially walking into a land, you know, a, a field of landmines uh, in doing this and, and uh, were you, were you willing and obviously you were, you were willing to do it, but, but were you prepared for that? I think I would say like for me, I was more concerned about making sure that I was giving voice to the composers or the people that join our podcast and not speaking for them, right? So like as like a straight white woman, like I can't, you know, like I don't want to speak for someone who has had a very different life experience than me. So the trepidation that I continue to feel is always that I want to make sure that I'm centering those like those voices and stories and not speaking for other people because I, we, you can't learn about someone else's story from me directly because it's going to be in my, you know, like my perception and the way that I tell it. So like the program notes in our, in our story and the bios in our, in our book are, are all from the composers. And that's why the podcast to, to me is so important because you literally hear the voices of the people that we're working with. Um, so like that for me, that was the trepidation. If someone wants to yell at me, like they can yell at me all day long. I don't, you know, it doesn't really bother me. And they're like, you don't need to do this. I'm like, that's fine. You don't need to buy this book. You don't need to listen to the podcast. You can unfollow us and you can block us on social media, whatever. That's fine. Um, I'm not really like a- angry people. That's I, yeah, they, they don't need this. This book isn't for them. It's yeah. Sorry, Ashley, go, go, go no, ahead. No, 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 you're good. Um, And the same thing, I was much more nervous when I started, like the first few lectures I gave because I had just started all of the research. I, like I had stuff to back me up, um, but over the years it was, you know, it's that self-doubt of, I, I am a white woman. Like, can I talk about this in a way that 
you know, is true to the people I'm trying to promote, not be a, um, just like a, a white gatekeeper. Um, because you see there are these organizations that are trying to, you know, uplift an, you know, a marginalized group that are founded by some white person that are led by it. And, and it's not led in, you know, this very authentic intention. Um, so ever since I started doing the work that I've done, I've constantly been checking in with colleagues and growing and learning and making sure that everything I'm doing is from a place of, you know, really trying to, to be authentic and to showcase that these there are some amazing composers out there they have this amazing music but it's not in the sense of we want to check uh, like tick boxes um we want to you know have this tokenism um and just really having these conversations and i've had a lot of talks with students in colleges across the country just on some of the issues i've seen the issues i've dealt with but also um bringing in stories of my colleagues to be like these are like these are problems that people face. I'm not, you know, I'm one person that has one life experience and I'm not trying to speak for every single person under the sun. I just want to, you know, make people aware of these issues, have these conversations, but continue to collaborate and work with other people. And so that's something that Carrie and I have definitely been aware of. Um, and we check in with each other to make sure, you know, wording is correct, that we're not, you know, inherently and unintentionally like trying to put down a certain group and and that all of the composers we work with know that you know they're not just a box that we care so much i care so much about these 12 people that we commissioned and every single person that we interview on the podcast and everyone we work with that you know they know their voice is important because they have great music and we're not just trying to you know, say, you know, make it the buzzword of, right. oh yeah, like we're diverse. Oh yeah. Like we really care about the sustainable inclusion that, mm -hmm. you know, everyone really takes a second to reflect on their practice, the language they use, how they talk about these issues. Um, because it's so much more than just the couple pieces you program on a recital. Um, it's, I mean, it's the lives of, of so many people. Yeah. yeah. Well, from uh, from a social perspective, I mean, uh, you know, music is just, is just a microcosm, and so the the problems that we face in the music industry, um, you know, they're just indicative of the the social problems that that we all face. So, from from the musical perspective, I mean, we have obviously the the world of performance, and we have the the world of education, uh, and I think in in both, I mean, and, and I'm going to put composition in there as, you know, as part of the performance aspect um, that, you know, the, there has been kind of this, this uh, standard uh, view of, you know, what is a great, you know, for, since this is a trumpet podcast, um, you know, you look at, you know, the, the, uh, the Mount Rushmore of trumpet uh, and there's not a female face on there. You know, you look at the the compositional side. There's not a female face on there, and I think educationally, it's it's kind of started to shift a little bit because we do have a lot more, uh, you know, really highly respected uh, female educators. But still, for the most part, you know, the discussion is always going to be, uh, you know, about, you know, guys and and generally white guys. Um, so, 
where do you see the change you know needing i know it needs to occur everywhere but where do you see it needing to change first and most is it in the the performing side or is it in the education side yeah i it's a good question i i i do some like judging um for like the national trumpet competition and i was like the graduate division prelim chair for the last round i can tell you like like the diversity in the performers and the pieces in that was was very vast so i feel like when i like looking at the pool of just huge i mean fantastic talent from all different walks of life was awesome um so like i feel like we're get like performers are co are coming out of schools in like currently so i feel like we're going to see a big change in the next 10 years um how do we change now uh, I think it's it's really tough, right? Like how how do we empower and how do we like bring and give opportunity to? I to I'm I'm a, like a, an educator to heart, so I'm I'm always like how do we like give students the chance to to do what they want, right? Like if this person wants to be like the next, you know principal trumpet of this orchestra, like let's get them to like get them to that point. Um, I think with like universities and orchestras, like tenure is a, is a big thing, right? So you have similar, you've had the same people that are in those jobs for a long time. So I think as like, like I don't wanna say like the guard, that's not what I mean, but you know, as those positions are, are changing over, like people are retiring, I feel like we're gonna see change in the next 10 years. It's just a matter of like retirements and, and kind of moving forward um, in, in that respect, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think for, I mean, it depends on the area. There's small things that can be done in, you know, for performers or for educators um, that are easy changes. And a lot of it is just, you know, taking a step back and reflecting on your practice, whether that's like your teaching practice, whether that's how you perform and just looking at, you know, what you play, looking at the master classes, the clinicians you bring in, mm -hmm. what videos you share with your students, yeah, something as simple as just like, you know, if there's, if you're showing Haydn, there are like a billion different recordings you can share. What, you know, who are you showcasing? Are you, you know, showing a wide range of people or are you only showing the same like four or five big names? Um, thinking about, I know I always, I am just extra judgy now, <laughs> but anytime I see like panels for, um, for like competitions or for, I don't know, different events and stuff. Like when you have panels and they show the panelists, do all those people look the same? Or is there someone that looks like me? Or if I have students, do they look like, like, can, you know, can, is it representative of just like society as a whole? Because we all don't look like white people. So, you know, is there that variety in panelists, in performers, in everything? And so that's just an easy thing to reflect on in everyone's practice. And if everyone can take that step um, and think about it, especially for like colleges, I mean, I remember auditioning and you had to play like either Hummel, Hummel or Haydn, either or Toonian or something else. It was, you know, these two choices and an, an easy change that 
professors can make is just letting students choose their own repertoire or for competitions bring in something of like now if i were to go back to school um like i'd look for schools that let me choose my own rep because i don't want to just play Haydn and hummel again um if i can you know, live my life and not play that again, that's great. Uh, <laughs> and so I'd be looking for places that allow me that flexibility and put it on the students because now that we have, you know, younger generations coming up, they may not want to play those same couple of pieces and we should give them that opportunity and let them, you know, bring in because then as educators, we're learning from that too. We don't have to know every single piece out there. We just have to keep this open mind and be willing to learn with our students. Yeah. Well, yeah, that that's kind of a interesting concept because I feel like we have this tendency to like want to freeze time and say, okay, this is the epitome. Okay, this is it. You know, the Hummel or the Haydn, you know, the Artunian, you know, the, the, this is it. You know, this is this is the representative trumpet work. And okay, yeah, it's been around. Uh, they're great pieces, um, and you know, it, it does help to establish a standard in a way, you know, because if everybody's kind of, you know, working the same thing, it's easy to make evaluations of, you know, uh, their, their abilities. Like when I was, when I was a competitive martial artist, I mean, we would have compulsory divisions where you had to do specific things, you know, and then it's easier for, from the judging aspect to be able to say, okay, well, this person is good at this, this person is better at this, you know, so it, those are easy things. But I think in terms of, of art, when you when you say okay well nothing written after you know after 1860 is legitimate you know it's it's you know only this is going to be good only, yeah so it, it one it, it stifles the the composers and then it, it also really shortchanges the performers because you know if all you're doing is listening to the same old stuff and and I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bad mouth and hiding, you know, if, well, of course, if he wants to come throw down with me, I'll be happy to take him on. Um, but you know, it, it's not, we're not listening to the same old crap. We're not playing the same old stuff. Uh, we're not sounding like everybody else. And by, I think that the, your idea of, of allowing students to be able to program their own repertoire is, is so important because you need to find things that speak to you. Because it, the things that speak to you will allow you to perform at your best, you know. So I, I really love that idea. Mm -hmm. So uh, any of you educators out there, Ashley has, has uh, thrown down the gauntlet. Uh, <laughs> let's look yeah. at some ways that you can change the way you approach your your students in, in your mm -hmm. studios. Yeah, I would I would add one thing too. Like uh, I think about like as we're gigging, like I, how many times did I get paid to play the Hummel or the Haydn or the Artunian? Never. How many times did I get paid to go sit in a jazz band? More times than the Haydn. How many times did I get to go sit in with, you know, a popular music group and play more? What do I do right now in my military band job? I play in a rock band. Um, I am a classically trained trumpet player, but I made sure that I, like, I can play other styles. Um, that That's another thing too, is you're like, making sure your students see not just like people but also different styles and where the trumpet fits because i think that's the fantastic thing about the trumpet and we're on a trumpet podcast so i can be a huge trumpet nerd now but like we play everything 
we play in every group. We fit everywhere except for Woodwind Quartet because I mean, yeah, yeah, they don't care. Sorry, sorry, they do really don't. Yeah, our percussion um, ensembles. Hey. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's also like as educators, that's an important thing to think about too. Like, you know, again, like how many spots are there in orchestras? Not as many as, as there are trumpet players. Like, where do we gig? Where do we make our money? Where do we find good people to play with? They're in every different kind of group. So, yeah. well, and that, that's a theme, uh, you know, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to, to interview, uh, Mary Elizabeth, uh, Bowden, uh, recently, and that was one of the things that she was talking about. It's like, you know, the 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 way that your career path is laid out, you know, traditionally, it's like, okay, you're going to go to school and you're going to get your master's, and then you're going to you're going to you know audition and get a, a job in an, an orchestra, and that should be your career path. Well, like you said, there there are actually there are fewer orchestras now than there were you know, 40 or 50 years ago when a lot of these programs really began to pick up their, their credentials in terms of, you know, these are the, these are the schools you want to go to for, for getting into the big times. So there are fewer and fewer opportunities to play in the orchestral setting. Uh, even like in the jazz world, you know, it used to be, you know, you would go out on the road with a big band. Well, there aren't any touring big bands anymore or very few of them. Yeah. So you have to, as an educator, or not as an educator, but the educational system uh, needs to reconsider the way that they are uh, programming the, the curriculum because uh, the things that that worked in the 50s and 60s and 70s no longer work because the, the, the face of music has completely changed. Yep. 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 <laughs> so we're all, in we're all in agreement here. Yeah. 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 If you pigeonhole yourself in one area, then if you're really, really good at this one thing, but aren't able to be a, a musical chameleon, then you're not going to get hired for those gigs. Also, don't show up to a gig that you can't actually mimic and play the style. Like, do your homework. Um, but yeah, it's a, like, especially after the last like two years, right? Like with trying, like musicians trying to figure out what, like, how do we, how do we keep doing what we're doing? That chameleon style is really helpful as, as we hopefully get back to safe performances in the future. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. And, you know, it's the, um, you know, so many, especially the, the older cats and I'm going to put, I, I'm not going to put myself in that. I'm, I'm old, but you know, it, I, I'm not one of the ones that uh, are afraid of technology. You know, so many people have been afraid of technology and um, you know, there, there is no getting around it, you know, as, as this past, uh, you know, past year and a half has, has shown us that, you know, you need to be able to, record at home. You need to know how to set up for a Zoom. And yes, yeah, so all of these different things that, uh, you know, when I was in, in school in the, the early 80s, uh, you know, no one talked about this. Well, you know, the technology didn't exist back then. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you have to stay on top of things and you have to be willing to grow and adapt and to, to change because, you know, everything around us is changing. And I think this is where we run into problems is that um, 
you know, like I said earlier, we kind of want to freeze things. We have that little perfect space and it's like, okay, I'm good now. I don't want to change. I, I want to keep doing things the same way. I'm comfortable. But uh, if you don't change and everything around you is changing, you're going to find yourself even further behind. So uh, I really applaud you guys for what you're doing uh, in terms of, of helping to move the conversation forward. Um, Ashley, I know you also have, besides, uh, you know, your the work is joined diversify the stand and uh your uh, lectures and things like that you have uh you're involved with rising tide music press and uh it there's a very similar theme there so uh what's what's rising tide all yeah. about so rising tide um a former colleague of mine now my boss um she is this really amazing um, vocalist and educator and songwriter uh, Alyssa Jones, and she never really felt like she had a space for, you know, publishing her own works because she started um, songwriting after years in education. She started, started songwriting like later in her career and it didn't feel like there was, you know, a space for, for her voice as this black woman, you know, multiple years in her career. So she asked me if I wanted to help um, start a publishing company specifically for the works of black brown indigenous and asian composers and creators in their first decade of writing um, and that could be you know we have some composers we're working with that are still in school we have some composers that you know are years into their career that just started writing and wanting you know their works published um, and so it's really rising tide is a space for you know to help promote their works. Um, and it's a wide range. We're working with, I think it's 16 composers so far. Um, everything from solo works through large ensemble pieces. And it, you know, it's just a space and a platform to um, promote their works, to share them with uh, performers and educators. I know we've got some partnerships coming up with um, more of like the education field for like the string world. Um, it, it's been really cool. It's working with some really amazing composers who never, you know, had never thought about getting their works published or didn't think, um, they had a space for that. And it's really, Rising Tide is really great too, because it's a no-profit company. So a hundred percent of what the composers ask for, they get back. So it's not like many, um, publishing companies where, you know, the composer gets maybe five to 10%, right. um, they get all of their asking price back because the point of this is to just help kind of be that stepping stone for them as composers, because as composers, you know, it looks really good when you're published with someone because um, Rising Tide's not exclusive. Like we've had composers who have gone on to partner with other publishing companies and that's great. And if they want to continue working with Rising Tide, wonderful. We're just another space to help get their music out into the world. Um, yeah, so that's been really, really cool. And we put on a symposium this summer to just learn and, and get, you know, have a lot of these conversations and panels with different educators about just the K through 12 system um, and talking with the composers and, and I led a panel. And so it's been a really cool space to just learn and grow from. Cool, cool. Well, you know, you with uh the discussions about um winds of change um and you know this current discussion about rising tide one of the the themes that came seems to keep 
coming through is um, like the K through 12, right? Um, you know, having having its progressive book for, uh, you know, beginner-ish level, intermediate, advanced, uh, you know, players. And I think sometimes we, we overlook the importance of that group, you know, that... Yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, you know, I, I, like I, this podcast. I love doing this podcast, and I I love talking to pros. Um, but you know, how do you get the next great player? How do you how do you get uh, you know the, the next phenomenal? Uh, you know, how do you get the next Alan Bazzuti? How do you get you know the you know any yeah? You know, how do you get the next uh, Mary Bowden? You know, the only way you can do that is by starting in that K through twelve and. Uh, you know, giving these young students an opportunity to play, giving them the opportunity to learn a, about music. And, you know, the other thread about obviously the diversity is showing them that it is possible. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, white, brown, you know, whatever your gender, uh, you know, it doesn't matter that, that there's somebody out there that's doing it at a high level and is respected in the industry. And I think that is going to, that's critical for, for music to continue on and to grow and to become what it really can be. So, um, you know, is, is that part of, of the, the theme of, of what, you know, am I just, you know, pulling stuff out of my... Oh, it's my... definitely a pretty large theme. I think there's so much power in like, when you see yourself in something, like Mary Bowden, and I are a similar age. I still look up to her. She's like fantastic. Like what a phenomenal educator and performer and just like the artisticness of her brain is just like fantastic. Like I want to be her when I grow up. Even though we're the same age. Like, <laughs> so do she's I. Just fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm older than her and I want to be older than her. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Like when you speak, I, I feel like I always, like I feel like I, when I first saw her, I was like, oh, I can do this. I can totally do this. Like she's doing this. I can do that. And I think that power is, is all over. And it, again, the collection is part of that, but also just the, I can also play pieces and support someone who is different than me and is, you know, is this person like I can do, I can play this and I can like, you know, add my, like, we are each going to play a piece of music like us. And I think that's such a powerful thing. And again, with students, like if you see yourself in the piece, or see that yourself on the TV, or see yourself on YouTube, like you're like, oh yeah, I can do that. And then you do it, right? There's no question in it. Um, but it until you see that, you're kind of like, oh, well maybe, oh, I can be, you know, being a pioneer is exhausting. <laughs> like, let's stop being pioneers. Let's just give voice and let's just give power to students and be like, go do it. Here it is, go, here's the piece, go, go. And I think that's, that's so powerful. And you, the fantasticness you get out of that is amazing. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it, it's funny. I mean, I, I've you know, alluded to the fact that I'm old, but uh, I just turned 60 uh, this year. And so I've, in thinking about my lifetime and the things that have, that have happened, you know, since the, the point, I mean, when I was a kid, I can remember the race riots, you know, uh, you know, and uh, I, I was young or, you know, I was born at a time where I can remember, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, as a, as a person of color, that there were places in, in the United States where I would not be welcome. And, you know, there's still places in the United States where I'm not welcome, but, uh, you know, that was, that was societally acceptable. And I've seen that change. I've, I've seen, um, 
you know, so many different things change over the course of my lifetime. And if I, you know, and then obviously, you know, you just going back beyond that, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, uh, you know, women were, uh, you know, were fighting for equal rights, you know, and, uh, you know, so it's like all of these, all these different things that have changed over, if not just our generation, but, you know, the generation prior to that. And it's so, you know, I was raised, you know, being told, you know, you can be anything you want. You can be the president of the United States. Well, it wasn't until, you know, <laughs> a few short years ago that, that I could actually say, yeah, the president of the United States looks like me, you know, and now, especially, you know, there, there's been the, the big thing for, for women and uh, particularly, uh, uh, you know, women of color of, you know, with, with Kamala Harris being vice president, it's like, wow, you know, you know, this is somebody that I can identify with who's in this, you know, second most powerful position. Uh, yeah, I say, hopefully, and soon we'll be able to say there'll be a woman president. Um, but it, there's so much power in that because you can be told things and you go, yeah, 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 I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. But it's not until you see somebody achieve it that then you can go, okay, it is possible. And I'm the kind of person that's like, mm, okay. I may think I can do it, but as soon as I see somebody else do it, uh, like, okay, now it's, po I know it's possible. So if they can do it, I can do it if I want it bad enough. So, uh, you know, how do you see yourself, um, in that role in, in the role of, of being the example, uh, for, for people who are looking to make impact, uh, whether it be as a musician, as an educator, or even as an entrepreneur, what, what do you see your, your position as being and what do you want the people that are looking up to you to be able to take away from the work that you're doing right now? I like to think that, you know, people can see that, you know, if they have an idea, you can figure out a way to make it happen because we didn't know, Carrie and I reached out to a bunch of different people and different like forums asking, hey, do people have advice on commissioning more than one composer? and no one did <laughs> everyone was like yeah we've we commissioned one person okay well so have i um so we didn't know how to do this so we kind of just figured it out um and, and it's something like that it's something that's turned into this lifelong mission we, we now have that i mean i mean it's just part of us it's not this big deal um but we just figured out a way to make something happen and so hopefully people can just see that you know if they don't see someone doing it that does not mean it's not possible and they just have to you know figure out a way and with the younger generation there's so much more that's out there like you know in the sense that we talked about that it's a struggle because like there's not as many orchestra openings there's not as many touring groups things like that you know on the other end there's all of these organizations and groups popping up because they're filling a hole um and they're just trying something that hasn't been done. And that's allowing a lot of new opportunities to come out of this, um, which is really cool to see. Um, and hopefully, I hope that, you know, in the future moving forward, that this just becomes standard. You know, if we can teach, you know, if, if Carrie and I can pass on this knowledge to other educators, other performers, younger generations, it just becomes how it is. You don't have to think about, you know, the demographics of your program. You don't have to think about who you're bringing in. It just, it just is. We don't have to, you know, 
the buzzword of diversity doesn't have to be a buzzword. It just is part of what we do. Um, and it becomes not this big deal when it's just incorporated in everyone's lives. So hopefully, hopefully I didn't get too far off there. Um, <laughs> hopefully that can just become, you know, the standard thing that is just ingrained in, in society. And that we don't have to be in competition with each other. I think sometimes when there's like one person who has unlocked this one, you know, like if there's a whole panel and one person that's like you, you're like striving to be that next one person. Let's just make the whole thing diverse. Like you're not uh, competing with each other. So I think sometimes, um, you know, professional jealousy is a thing. So like rather than being jealous of someone else, like celebrate success together and move everything forward rather than like targeting you know, like, I'm going to be like the next, you know, blah, 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 like, celebrate that someone else is that and continue to move forward. I think that's really important, too. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, we all have, um, we have our unique experiences and our you your unique uh, perspectives on things. And I think that, uh, you know, diversity, that's why diversity is so crucial, because, you know, when we allow all the voices to say and express, then we get a clearer picture of what's possible. You know, so um, this is just, this is amazing stuff. So uh, we've got, before we can uh, close up for today, we've got three segments we got to get through. These are my standard segments. And uh, the last one's going to be most the most interesting one because I got to figure out how to to balance this between the two of you. Uh, but the the first one is a segment we call Sound Off, and Sound Off is brought to us by uh, my good friend Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones. Um, and uh, this is a little more about the the technical aspect of trumpet playing, and uh, you know it's about sound. So, what approach uh, do you uh, individually uh, have about developing the right sound? uh for your job so uh, and especially i think carrie this is going to be an interesting one uh, for you because you are in that situation where you you are the the chameleon and and you know going from a classically trained player to now you know doing a lot of uh non-classical music uh you know so uh let, let's talk about uh you know your, your your advice basically like your advice to people about sound concepts yeah so I, I think I, I start, I think for me, the most important thing is in like the morning and my warmups and, and what I'm doing is to get the, just a really awesome core sound and like playing like, you know, Stevie Wonder highlights the night before and then having to get up at 5.15 in the morning like I did yesterday and go play Sousa marches. Um, having like getting myself back to like kind of a good tone without any grit and gore and like all of that, like, you know, all that sizzle poppy things. So I do a lot of pitch bends and lead pipe buzzing on its own just to kind of get like a really um, clear tone kind of in my middle range. And then as I'm kind of chameleon, chameleon-ing, if that's a word, um, to different styles is I'm making sure that I'm listening to good um, kind of examples of what I want that sound to be. Um, I do play a little bit of a diff, I have a totally different like horn and mouthpiece that I play in my, um, you know, like in the rock band that I play in. And then I have a different setup for when I do kind of the classical marches to kind of like a difference, a little bit of a different setup for when I play in like uh, brass quintet and solo stuff. So for me, a little bit of change of equipment just so that the full feeling of the horn is just a little different. It helps trigger my like mentalness of like, oh, this is the sound that I want. Um, but it, for me, starting my day and making sure that I, I'm getting back to just kind of like my normal sound and then kind of branching off from there. Cool. 
And how about you? I'm not a military musician. Uh, <laughs> I actually, um, to be honest, this past year, I took a lot of time off um, playing just because of like pandemic with everything cutting, uh, with, like with everything canceling that, that really took a lot of my motivation away on playing. Um, so I spent the past year kind of reformatting things because I had I got my master's in 2019. So I've been out for two years now. Um, and I had a lot of reflection time this past year, just centering around, you know, my like mental concepts of playing and why I play. And there was a lot of like guilt behind it. Um, like, you know, when you're in school and there's a lot of, you feel you have to play because you have to sit right. in a practice room for so many hours because, um, so I forced myself to take a lot of time off to rework those habits. Um, so now, now that the book is coming out, um, this summer, I've spent a lot of time coming back to the horn, um, and making sure that it's from a place of, I want to play and not just, I feel this guilt if I have to. Um, so honestly, this summer has been a lot of just a lot of fundamentals, whether that's written down things. I haven't done a structured warm up because I'm trying to rebuild the healthy habits and not get back into a rut of how I was before. So I'm, I'm treading very lightly. Um, but it's been a lot of long tones, a lot of lip bends, a lot of things to make sure I'm putting sound first and getting the sound I want and not just feeling I have to play the hard stuff because that's what I was doing before I took time off. Um, so it's been weird because I've never had this much time off, like without gigs and without things, but I think it's been really good for myself to take this time to rework my habits and make sure. So then, you know, when the book comes out or when we're putting these recordings out and I go back to live lecturing and, and performing, um, that it's in a much better mental space, which I feel if I'm in a much better mental space, that's going to come across in my sound. Um, whether or not I have the endurance like I did before, um, I care a lot more and I know that, you know, I'm, I have all of these healthy physical and mental habits. Right. Well, there's, there's a lot to be said for that. There's a whole lot to be said for that. All right. Uh, we're going to move on to our next segment. Uh, and this is uh, Geared Up. And this is where we get to be trumpet geeks. Uh, and uh, Geared Up is brought to us by uh, Venture Mouthpieces, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. And uh, if you are a, if you're looking for a mouthpiece, check them out. Uh, use the code TrumpetGurus21 and you get 10% off because we love mouthpiece safaris. Where That's what we're all about. You need more gear. Um, <laughs> So uh, anyway, um, let's talk about gear a little bit. And this is not um, this is not the hey, you know, what horn, what mouthpiece are you playing per se, but it's more about concepts of gear. Mm -hmm. And and particularly, you know, as we've been talking about like the K through K through twelve thing, uh, I think that one of the things that's missing in our educational system, even in college, is people aren't really talked to about how to pick gear, you know. So uh, what are your concepts from an educational standpoint on gear and how to go about finding gear that, that fits you for the specific needs that you have? Yeah, I'm, I'm very sound, sound focused in not, like I want to get students, especially like, you know, we start with those like the beginner horns and like a 7C or whatever mouthpiece and, and that sort of thing. And physically children are smaller, right? 
And this is such a good point, and I'm so glad that you bring this up because I think I was always just handed mouthpieces and told to buy horns, and they're they're great and they're fine. All of my teachers were very tall, large men, um, and I'm physically a different size than them. So I think it's such an important thing to talk about in thinking about like picking equipment and picking mouthpieces and horns. Like, just remember that your students might be different sizes than you, so you can't just hand them like you know like a, like a Bach one C and be like, here you go, you're the next uh, Bud Herseth, uh, because like they might just be like a you know very small, different size person. Um, so thinking thinking about that is is a good idea. Ashley Ashley and I are very different sizes, so I would not prescribe my same setup to her. I am uh, I'm five foot tall. <laughs> I have always been five foot tall. Um, like from birth, five foot tall. Yeah, from birth. I yeah. came out five. Foot tall. <laughs> um, and yeah, I same thing. I I hate this mouthpiece safari hunt because I hate the honeymoon period because I love that it feels good and then a couple weeks later it's like oh. Um, but same thing. I was always just given stuff. And, and in undergrad, it was always, um, you know, like the professionals play on a one and a half or a one. So like, I feel I got to get up to that point. So it was constantly like trying to have bigger stuff. And it wasn't until, um, at UNM when, uh, John was like, Hey, um, maybe that's not actually right for you. Um, and we, we scaled down and it, helped so much because I was just, I have this small frame with smaller lungs, which is okay. Like, that's fine. I just have to breathe a little more. Um, but it was something that actually fit me instead of just trying to get me to fit this giant equipment. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I also, I don't like the people that, I mean, this isn't equipment. This is like, I guess, body equipment. But the amount of times I have been told to try and grow my lung capacity, I'm sorry, but my lungs are the same. Like my lungs are the same size, so <laughs> maybe not going that route and thinking more about efficiency rather than just. Mm -hmm. I mean, the breathing, like the breathing tools, are there as tools, but in the end, like you can't completely grow your lungs because that's not how bodies work. Um, and so I guess like my, I've grown into like this educator that works more about let's use what you have. Let's use, you know, whether it's your lungs or your mouthpiece, if it feels comfortable, go from there and work to make that sound good instead of just constantly being on this battle for the next new thing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, in, in the trumpet world, the, the concept of air, and, you know, it's always about more air, more air, more air, as opposed to efficiency. Two of the most efficient players that I know, and, and these are, are more from the commercial side, uh, Bobby Shue and John Faddis. And I've talked to both of them uh, at length about some of these concepts. And they both have talked about how, as kids, they had some kind of problems with their lungs. And they actually have very, very low levels of lung capacity. And so they don't have full lung capacity. So they just learned how to be more efficient with what they use. And you can't, you know, you can't listen to Bobby or John and say, dude, you know, you'd be able, you'd be able to play a lot better if you, you, you know, if you just uh, grew your lungs, you know, so yep. you know, it's some of that, that, that stupidity that, that we get caught up in, you know, and, um, 
Yeah. It's like yeah. an obsession, right? It was like, it was like, breathe from your, like, feel your diaphragm. Well, you can't feel your diaphragm. Like, it's that. It's an involuntary then, yeah. muscle. Yeah. It just. Yeah. yeah. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, and, and the thing about the, about the equipment, yeah, you're absolutely right that, uh, Ashley, that, yeah, I, I've heard people use the, the analogy of, of, uh, like sports shoes, you know, it's like if, uh, you know, if you want to play basketball like Michael Jordan, you're not going to wear his, you know, his shoes, you know, because his feet a lot bigger than yours, probably, <laughs> you know, they would probably make you less agile. <laughs> so, uh, you know, to, to play, you know, to play a set, same setup with as, as Bud played isn't going to make you sound like him. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and the reason he went to the the 1C was because he had scar tissue and he had to have, have a bigger after an accent. So he had to have a bigger mouthpiece di- uh, diameter so that he could actually access the vibrating surfaces of his chops, you know? And so people don't think about that. All they see is, oh, well, this player plays this, this size horn. They play this size mouthpiece. Yep. And uh, I think it's, you know, it's really an intimate process. You know, the, the horn is, is, a, is an interface for you and your creativity and it's got to be something that that fits you you know so i'm i'm with you i'm with you on that all right final segment and this is the uh, robinson's remedy rapid fire rounds with a series of questions that go all over the place and this is going to be the hardest one to do because i'm going to have to bounce back and forth. so here i'll let you choose so i can either bounce back and forth between the two of you let each of you answer a different, different question or i can get answers to the same question from both of you what would you prefer Okay. Carrie. Let's do the let's let's do the bounce the bounce one. Okay. That way, that way we're we feel like we're on the same team. All right. Okay. Yes, because there is a prize. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Carrie, I'll send you a whoopie pie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, and some, some, birch, lo- some birch beer, some some, some birch beer, and birch beer. Yeah, That'd be and, great. and some Lebanon Bologna. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Ashley's like, God, you guys are weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here we go. We'll start with, we'll start with Carrie. Since I started the, the, uh, the session with, with Ashley, I'm going to start with Carrie on this one. Um, Carrie, who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? I would have to say it was my grandfather who, uh, used to sing me to sleep every night and I spent a lot of time at their house and he was a military person from World War II so he was a pretty strong influence in my desire to want to be a military musician and he's always really supportive of me and we used to dress up and like sing little things together. Not a musician and I think if he lived in a different time he would have been an artist and and maybe like more artistic but lived in a time where he was like worked for a you know machine shop so yeah. I'd say it's my grandfather. Okay, cool. Ashley, what's your favorite book? Um, the Red Rising series. It's a like a dystopian sci-fi series by Pierce Brown. Okay. And Carrie, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Oh, oh gosh. I, can't, oh. It, I think it was called Bowfinger. It was just awful. I saw it in the theater and it was just like some weird, it was awful. I just like, I can't even remember. It was so terrible. Uh, is that the one with Steve Martin and? I think yeah. so. Yeah, it was awful. So yeah. bad. Ugh. All right. Try and put it out of your head. Yeah. Uh, 
and uh, for Miss Ashley, um, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? Oh my gosh, so many things. Probably, I don't know, I think I would go do something in business or some sort of, like, I would be a really great college advisor with scheduling. Mm, that'd be great. <laughs> scheduling. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Or something with spreadsheets. Okay. Carrie knows. I have spreadsheets for everything. Uh, do you have a spreadsheet for your spreadsheets? No, but I have them all in nice, like, nice folders. Okay. No, well, work on that one. All right. Uh, and uh, Carrie, what's your favorite drink? Uh, I, I love, I love beer uh, and I love IPAs. Like the hoppier, the better. Um, yep. You have a a uh, IPA of choice. Uh, I love uh, the Mercenary Double IPA from Odell's Brewery in Fort Collins, Pens uh, Fort, Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, that's probably my favorite one. Okay, good deal. Uh, and I'm gonna, this is a two part question, so I think I'll I'll, uh, I'll split it up. So uh, the first question is uh, then going to be for Ashley. You're going to have a dinner party. And you can invite any three living people. Any three people in the world can come to this dinner party. Oh, Who would you invite? Oh, that's so hard. Can I have like 10 minutes to think about this? Um, I know, rapid fire. Um, you want to do the second part for Carrie and come back to me? I'm thinking. Probably... Simone Biles. Okay. The goat. Um, I would love to have Kate Nishimura, our composer friend in Canada. And, oh my gosh, Michelle Obama. Okay. And uh, Carrie, you're going to join that dinner party. Uh, and you're going to bring yes. with you, you're going to bring with you any three people from history. Oh, you're just mean with these, aren't you? Yeah. So yeah. good. Oh, from history. Jeez, yeah. Marie's. Can they, they can be living though, right? No, 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 oh, no. They have to be dead? Dead. Is Fanny Price a weird one? I want to meet Fanny Price. This is your party. Come on. Let's, let's Fanny Price. Fanny Price. Um, okay. She can join the party. She can totally join the party. I, yeah, I'm obsessed with her music and and that time period. I think that would just be fantastic. Uh, um, weirdly, Abraham Lincoln. I feel like that would just bring the party. Like just, <laughs> just you know, just bring that tall hat and stuff. Um, Pretty on Garth. Yeah, just bringing it, bringing it to the party. Dead white guys. Why am I bringing dead white guys to the party? <laughs> Um, and then I, this is so hard. Ashley, how'd you do it so good? I don't know. Um, no matter what, we'll have a cool party. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I'm stumped. I can't like think of any names. You couldn't think of one other person. Not, no. not, not, not a past musician or, uh, inventor or thought leader or military strategist or oh, yeah definitely not th those people um 
let's add Miles Davis. Miles, okay, all right, yeah, we'll take that. Um, all right, uh, going back over to uh, Miss Ashley for this one, who's ahead by three points. Um, you win. Lack <laughs> lacquer plated or raw? Um, lacquer plated. All right, uh, and Miss Carrie, what's your favorite quote? Uh, you're so, these are, these are hard. I wrote it down too. Why can't I remember? Uh, it is, uh, by Chica. It's, it, it's one of, in one of her songs. It's kill them with kindness and sound. Mm, okay. That's good. Um, and let's see, we were, uh, let's, oh, here we are. I lost track of where it was in my questions. Uh, and, uh, for Ashley, what is your greatest fear? Huh. Um. I don't know. Um. Ooh, probably being burned alive. Mm -hmm. be not very fun that, that would be yes that'd be very not fun all right uh carrie you could be granted one superpower what would it be oh i'd want to fly okay and uh ashley what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated equipment and carrie what do you feel what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most underrated tone okay uh let's see ashley you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music what would it be do what makes you happy and not just doing what pleases other people okay and carrie what advice would you give your younger self about life budgets are very important and you're better at them than you think. Mm. Okay, I'm glad you are. Uh, and the final question I'm going to actually ask to both of you. Um, what do you want your legacy to be? Mm. Deep thought. It's hard. Stay still enough. Pretend that you're frozen. <laughs> You can go first, Carrie. <laughs> uh, I Legacy for me, I think about the students that I have taught and are teaching and will teach. And I want something that I've said to them to have made an impact in the way they perform and make them feel like their voices are important and the music that they're making is important even if it's, if it's to them or to their audiences, but to like, to feel really good about what they're, what they're playing or what they're doing, not just music, but you know, if some, something small that I've said made a, made a, a difference for them or made life just a little bit, like a little bit better, a little bit more musical, a little more, that's what I'd love. Okay. I hope that everyone that I just pass on that, you know, there's no, like there's no boundaries you can't crush and you can, you know, just, I, I, I guess I want my legacy to just be knowing that I've, you know, done everything I can to support other people. And hopefully that passes on to 
you know, the people I've influenced so that they can go on and continue to make that difference in musical and non-musical in all of their pathways. Okay. Awesome. Well, I really thank you for uh, spending time with me today and um, want to remind everybody that uh, you can visit Diversify the Stand, uh, support the organization. And uh, if you are a educator or a performer or you have a young performer in your home, definitely pick up a, a copy of Winds of Change. Uh, it will be released, uh, scheduled release date is uh, November. Is that correct? Correct. November 1st. So um, go to Diversify the Stand and you can uh, order there and also uh, help to support the initiatives that Ashley and Carrie have taken on. And uh, the links are in the show notes. So just drop on in there. So um, once again, just thank you so much uh, for everything that you're doing and for taking your time. This is a great conversation. And uh, I really look forward to, to seeing you two somewhere at some point uh carrie maybe we'll see each other at a turkey hill somewhere oh, get some iced tea mm. Mm, 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 mm. uh and uh yeah so just just keep up the good work and i'm i'm just really i'm rooting for you i really am so uh yeah so and thank you for spending time with us today on the trumpet gurus hang and uh, remember to subscribe like share ring the bell don't dent the bell, whatever it is that you need to do to, to stay in touch with us. And uh, yeah, just keep diversifying the stand. So until next time, peace and slide grease, we out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We wanna see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of the Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Mm-hmm.